TikTok, TikTok. No, not that kind of TikTok. I'm talking about the old-fashioned kind, the countdown. There are five days to go until the big day. Israeli election number five. It's October 27th. We are election overdose. I'm Dahlia Shenlin here in Haaretz Studios with the one and only Angel Pfeffer. Hi, Angel. Hey, Dahlia. Are you all excited? You keep asking me that, and I just... I'm waiting. I, I guess I'm the wait, anticipation I'm, 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 I'm is sort of for, rising. For the, uh, you know, for the bug to, to, to finally bite. Well, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, we're going to have another guest today. Amir Tibon, the deputy editor of Haaretz's English Operation, and he will be joining us later. We've lost track of how many episodes we've done, but remind me, Angel, this is our fifth election out of how many? How many are there going to be in total? Well, I'd like to say this is it. There is no... I'd like appetite. you to say that too. Yeah, well, there's no, there is no real appetite for another election, and many of the politicians that you talk to are saying, this is the last one, we will make sure of it. And yet... And yet. As you look, and we're going to talk about later in this episode about the possible outcomes and scenarios and so on. What's going to happen? Netanyahu will win a majority. If he doesn't, if Netanyahu doesn't get 60, uh, if Netanyahu block the four parties, of Netanyahu don't get 61 seats on Tuesday, then he won't have a government. And we'll have a sixth election? If Netanyahu camp, the four parties supporting him, don't win 61 seats, he's not going to be forming a government. Who will? Yagel appeared, Benny Gantz, the the pass the pathways that they have to possible coalitions are so narrow and convoluted and we've seen in the last 3 years the Netanyahu Gantz government lasted for 6 months the Bennett Lapid government lasted for just 1 year whatever government they perhaps can form life expectancy probably somewhere between those 6 months and one year the two previous governments Ruling out a gut an election in 2023, I would certainly not do that. Okay, we're going to be talking about the scenarios for coalition building after we see the results next week. I'm not a betting person myself. I'm just a pollster, sometimes a pundit. We're here to try to make sense of the following very important things. First, we're going to go through some brief election-relevant re- news updates from the last week. And then we're going to do a deep dive into the scenarios which we can expect to see on Tuesday night in terms of election results as the exit polls come out and as the actual results come out. Then we'll talk about the other thing people like to blame beyond the polls, because everybody blames pollsters, but every other day is a media bashing day, either because people don't like the way elections are going or because their political leaders tell them the media is evil and the enemy of the people. So we're going to break down coverage in general and specifically Haaretz's coverage. That's why we'll be welcoming Amir later today. So let's talk about the selection of news items that we think are relevant for this last week of elections that maybe possibly could influence the voters as they make their final decisions. As we speak, Israel and Lebanon are signing the big deal demarcating the maritime boundary between them. It was a controversial deal in the political sphere. Itamar Ben-Gvir and some stellar non-governmental right-wing challengers submitted court petitions insisting on a referendum and Knesset approval. The court rejected them. Lapid didn't want to do those things. And the right wing is calling the whole thing anti-democratic, but it's being signed right now. It's a big deal in general, but Angel, do you think it's going to have any impact on these elections? No, I don't think so. For two reasons. First of all, it is a big deal, but I think even right-wing voters and supporters of Bibi or Bengvir, I think they know pretty well that assuming this deal would have been available to Prime Minister Netanyahu back when he was Prime Minister, he would be signing it. It's 
it's not a great deal. It's not history as as Lapid uh, um, as Lapid calls it. It's an it's an important deal. It has important implications, but it's a commercial water, uh, gas, and so on. It's not uh, it's nothing existential or, or hugely uh, important to the future of the na- of the nation. It's good that it's happening. Netanyahu would have signed it as well, and I think his voters are aware of it. And that's why they're not making such a big deal. Of it, I mean, Netanyahu is making a big deal, but I don't think we're seeing in the polls. It's not changing people's minds very much. And I think the other reason is that I don't think there is any issue right now that can budge people. You know, we've had so many th- things happening over the last few years that we said this is going to change people's minds, and we're still here. So I don't think it's going to really change people's minds either. Of course, the one thing that I always focus on are the legal ramifications. And naturally, when the Supreme Court rejected those challenges, of course, the right wing response was that the Supreme that the, the the High Court of Justice, the Supreme Court, is always against us, which is not true, because they also had some victories uh, from the court in recent weeks. But that is an ongoing narrative. We discussed it last time. But let's talk about our favorite leader of the religious Zionist party, Bezalel Smotrich, who's been running these funny television ads in which he shows up looking, I have to say, frankly, ridiculous in a helmet as if he. A delivery person from Walt, which is our top takeaway company. And he says, with Voltrich, you always get what you ordered. I don't get it either. But his voters didn't get what they ordered when a leaked tape caught him dissing their favorite prime minister, Netanyahu, very badly. He called him a liar, son of a liar. He said they're going to throw the book at him. And he said that his biology or his age will force him out of office eventually and that we just need to be patient. And now people are talking about Smotrich Gate. Anshul, I want to ask you a particular question about this. I heard a political commentator and consultant who shall remain nameless right now. When he was interviewed about this issue, he said, oh, it's obvious that this helps Smotrich. And I still don't know what he's talking about, but maybe you can explain it or tell me what you think of it. Well, I don't think it's obvious, but there there are arguments on both sides. It could help Smotrich because you didn't mention the what, to my mind, is the more important part of the recordings of Smotrich and where he's... Why is he calling Netanyahu a liar, son of a liar? Well, there could be many reasons to call <laughs> Netanyahu a liar. There was one particular. In this uh, context, he was talking about the way Netanyahu was very energetically pursuing Mansour Abbas, leader of the United Arab List of Ram, and wanting uh, very much wanting him in his uh, in his coalition. Smotrich stood up uh, against it, and some would say prevented uh, a Netanyahu Ram uh, coalition from uh, from happening, and. In that context, Smotrich is gaining things because Smotrich is saying, look, I am the only person here, in even within the right-wing Netanyahu coalition, who is standing up and making sure that these terrible Arabs won't be part of a government. In that sense, yes, this could help Smotrich because people will say, well, you know, if you're on the right and you don't want to see Arabs in the government, then it's not enough to vote for Netanyahu. You have to vote for Smotrich and Benkvir and religious Zionism, their list. On the other hand... Another reason that people vote for Smotrich and Bengvir, and actually also another reason people vote for Shastri is that they are pro-Netanyahu, but they say, I'm going to vote for these parties because they support Netanyahu anyway, they're not going to support anybody else, and they come with something extra. So if it's Shas, it's extradition. If it's United Torah Judaism, it's extra looking out for Haredi special interests, and if it's religious Zionism, it's extra racism. So it's two for the price of one. However, Smotrich in this really very uh so you think you call it nasty i thought it was arrogant then Not again i generally think he projected but in the way he was speaking about netanyahu if you're a netanyahu supporter you can say hold on maybe he isn't actually so pro netanyahu maybe in 
a scenario that I can't imagine in the future. Smotrich will stab Bibi in the back, and therefore I'm going back to vote for Likud. And Netanyahu actually ramped up that saying. He didn't even go into the content of what Smotrich said. He didn't try and deny it. He said, I forgive Smotrich. In other words, I'm the benevolent father, and you know he's he's been nasty to me, but I forgive him. But vote for me, don't vote for him. I have a feeling it's going to be good for Netanyahu, and the reason is that I have long been tracking Netanyahu's projection or presentation of himself as the victim, as the people, the, the person who is always suffering the criticism of the left, of the media, of, of the entire Israeli society, all the, the half that doesn't appreciate him enough. He always uses the line, they're spilling my blood. And I think that his many of his voters feel that he that they connect to the sense of somehow the state isn't taking us seriously enough. These are many of them have felt historically marginalized. And to see somebody ragging on him, even within his own camp, I think that it just reminds people that we need to stand up for Netanyahu. I also know that when Netanyahu uh, fell under corruption charges and it became clear that the attorney general was about to indict him, his poll ratings went up and many people said we have to rally to his side. So it could have that kind of effect as well. And to that end, it would be good for Netanyahu because so far religious Zionism is simply rising in the polls, generally at Likud's expense. The next interesting thing is that there's been a bit of a flurry in the Arab community in terms of election activity. Some of it is coming from Jewish politicians, top Jewish politicians. Lapid went to Nazareth. He gave interviews to the Arab media earlier. And in these interviews, he said things like that he would amend the nation state law to include an equality clause, something his party has supported in the past. He also said he'd freeze the Kamenitz law, which many Arab citizens hate because it restricts their uh, building and development capacity. When he visited Nazareth, he did not urge community figures to go vote for Yeshatid. He was mainly trying to uh, encourage turnout. Uh, Netanyahu also has been working on the Arab community and trying to revive his Abu Yair campaign. Do you think either of these are going to actually contribute to higher voter turnout? I have no idea. And I don't think, with all respect to all the pollsters who are working right now on the Arab uh, vote, that anybody really has a good idea. This is We've seen this fluctuating up and down in the last six or seven, I mean, even going back further back than the, this four or five election period, it's been wildly changing. And people have tried to say, well, when the joint list goes together, then they do, then there's more. But we saw back in 2013 when there were no joint lists, and that was one of the highest turnouts we've had in the last couple of decades. There, there are various uh, factors here. We don't know yet how they're going to play out. How is it going to play out the fact that the first time there is a party running, which was actually an Arab party, obviously, running, which was actually in government? We don't know. So this will, may well be the, the, one of the main stories we'll talk about next week when we'll know more or less what the results have been. And we can say the Arabs are the ones who won it or the Arabs are the ones who screwed everyone up. Who knows? But right now, yes, it's a big, big issue. But we're totally in the dark. I do think there's going to be some impact because I've had Arab colleagues tell me over the last few weeks that the population feels very despairing right now and cynical. M many in the Jewish population feel the same way. But what my friends have been telling me, uh, and they're, they're also political analysts, is that many people just want to see some of the leading politicians pay attention to them. I've heard the line, it almost doesn't matter what they say if they just you know, come to our community, show us that, that they take us seriously as voters, that that could matter. And it's true that turnout predictions for the Arab community have been all over the place. But I did see one interesting data point just on the way here that uh, influenced my thinking about turnout. The range has been as low as 32% to 50% in polls, roughly. Um, the Israel Democracy Institute has a new survey about Arab turnout that they say shows 70% could be voting. But if you look closely, the people who are 
who are certain they're voting are still only about 50 percent. But I think the more relevant question they asked was whether you think voting is effective. And 48 and a half percent or just about 48 percent said, yes, I think it's effective. I think that's the number we should be looking at as the upper range for voting. In, well, in the Arab community? We shall see next week. We shall see. We should also point out that Jewish turnout looks pretty similar to last time from everything we can tell from polls so far. What else this week? So probably one of the biggest questions is what's going to happen to the small parties. And the small parties, or two prominent small parties, have been accusing the leader, so the so-called leader of Leblanc, Yair Lapid, we're talking about Labour and Meretz, who are in the polls. How much are they scraping the threshold? Dali? They're scraping it from above. Meretz is averaging just above four. Labour is still we're talking about aver- seats. The, the threshold yeah, seats. is 3.25%. So right. We, we need to kind of make this clear for the listeners. We need to make it very clear. Seats, Meretz is an average, just over four seats. And I'm talking about the average of the last few weeks. Labour is on an average of five seats, but if that's rounded up. So actually their their uh, average is four point, very close to five, 4.8, 4.9. But remember that 3.25% of a survey that's 500 people, 600, 700, these are very tiny numbers, big margin of error within that small number of respondents. And I'm just looking now at two headlines in the papers today. So we'll start with the Haaretz headline because we are Haaretz. Hello, I'm kind of ad-libbing a translation here from Hebrew. Lapid will not try and pump away votes from Labour and from Merit and will focus his uh, his efforts on the right wing. That's Haaretz's headline. Well, meanwhile, in Idiotach Ronot, uh, it says Lapid is insisting on a big party campaign within the bloc, even if the even at the price of wiping out merits or labor. Who's right? Well obviously we're how it's we're right. For the but, purposes of this podcast, I'm not a political but strategist. The not have um have good political uh, correspondence and I would wager that there's some truth in both headlines. Lapid is claiming not to be doing it but focusing on trying to bring votes from the right block to to his block while Merits and Labour are certainly feeling under threat. Now, there is there's a claim that big parties, because they have much bigger resources, also are capable of using various uh, digital advertising methods, targeting voters, and that basically means that they can, as this is saying now in Hebrew, drink up the votes of the smaller parties around them. How true do you think that is? Well, certainly it's true that they have more money. We can remind listeners that campaigns in Israel are publicly funded, and the amount of funding they get is based on the number of seats they have in the outgoing Knesset, which favors the big parties. It just means they have much bigger budgets. On the other hand, you don't need a big budget to do digital targeting. You can take whatever budget you have and do that. So I think at this point, the voters have been through this so many times. You know, most academic studies, to the extent that anybody trusts academia, show that Surprisingly, the campaigns are not as effective as we seem to think they are anyway. So where's this myth so I'm of, not sure. I mean, it's a myth mainly about Netanyahu, that Netanyahu can drink up the votes of the right-wing parties around him, and now people, for some reason or another, are applying that same myth to Yair If he just wants, all he needs to do is press a button, and he will hoover up votes from uh, Meretz and Labour. I don't think it's a myth. that He has been going up steadily in the surveys since these elections were called in June. Slowly and steadily, he has won about three seats on average. He's averaging over 24 seats now, and he started at 21. And it's coming at the expense of 13 combined seats that Meretz and Labour had together. At present, they're polling it between 8 and 10. So will it uh, turn out to be a mistake that Meretz and Labour refuse to merge their lists on the well, eve of, uh, of filing to the CEC? 
uh, based on my anecdotal conversations just over the last two days, there are a number of people, some people, no, I don't want to talk about numbers. These are just anecdotes. There are people, I'm not saying how many, who have told me that they're so worried about labor and merits that they really want the bloc to win. Of course, they want Lapid to be prime minister, but they will be voting just to make sure that one of those two parties crosses the threshold. So if those voters all turn out and it works out according to plan, at minimum, labor and merits together will get eight seats. And personally, if they had merged, I don't believe they would get eight. But those seats wouldn't have gone to, to Netanyahu. They wouldn't. They would have gone. True. So then the question is, does any of this matter? All they have to do is cross the threshold. Well, w- once again, we'll see on Tuesday night. So since we don't know what's going to be happening on Tuesday night for ourselves and for you, the listener, we are going to try and work out every possible scenario of what we could expect in the election result. Dali, do you want to kick off our scenarios? Well, there are so many. I mean, we're talking about the scenarios for results. Um, and I think that... Yes, that's very important. Yeah, we're not, not talking about scenarios. the possible government uh, coalition outcomes. That we will leave to when we more or less know the results in our final episode next Thursday. Okay, I think we need to review the reality that polls over and over and over again relentlessly are telling us that we have a tie between the big blocks. We have 60 and 60. That is the average of a gazillion polls, which I analyzed this week. So if the polls are right, we're looking at a tie between blocks, but then there's a question of which parties will either go under or over the threshold, which could really shift the blocks. And I think that would depend on mostly turnout. Um, And... The parties that are really the candidates for those are the four parties in the in the uh, well, we we used to call it the opposition block, but it's of course the current uh, change government block, Yair Lapid's block. Those are Labor, Meretz, um, Hadash, Taal, and Ram. Even though Ram is not a party we can really depend on in terms of blocks, because they could easily, or at least I think Ram would be prepared to go in with Netanyahu as well. And Hadash Taal won't go into any government because they, they hate won't. all Israeli governments. The only question is whether they will recommend that Lapid form the next government when it comes time to consult with the president, and whether they will support it in a vote of confidence for establishing the government. And I think that uh, we should mention, even though the assumption is that they're safe, there is another party which could suddenly dip beneath the threshold. Another party from the anti-Netanyahu bloc. I don't see it, though. And the reason I don't see it is because for a long time they were polling on an average of five seats, which is close to the threshold, but they're trending upwards. Very little. They're averaging over six seats right now. So because the trend is going upward and they they do have a history, as Yossi Shane told us, of doing a little better than their polls, I doubt if they will go under, but there could be a surprise on the other side as well. Even though you gave a very quick answer to this last time when I said, could we see a surprise and the Yelet Shaked by Itayudi, Jewish Home Party, could go over the threshold. Your we response have, was We also have ballads, which is under the threshold, and nobody's expecting them, certainly not on the base of the polls, to to make the surprise and go over, but they're in contention as well. Anybody who wants to read Dalia's uh, analysis of the gazillion of polls she's been, she's been following, there's a great piece by Dalia right now, which went up on the Haaretz.com website. Thank you, Angel. The polling, as, as, as I read, and I'm not... I, we, you're the po- pollster and polling and but you bring a, analyst here, so I'm going to try and bring a layman's look to it. I think there are four assumptions that the polls are based on. One is that so far they're all saying that 
all these parties that you've mentioned, which are scraping the, the threshold from above, are going to pass as they did in the previous election. The only parties which were in the current Knesset and still are running, which is Ayelet Shaked, Jewish Home, and Balad, which will fail, they, they, the, pulse, the pulses seem in, in total consensus. Everyone else will pass, they will fail. That's one assumption. The other assumption is that most of the 13 seats worth of votes, which went to the two anti-Netanyahu right-wing parties which ran in the last election, Yamina and New Hope, which are not running in this election, most of those voters, and that's around 10%, of the total vote will come home to the Netanyahu block. Assumption number two. Assumption number three is that religious Zionism is taking away voters from all the other parties in the block, from Likud, Shas, United Torah, Judaism. And assumption number number four is that Arab turnout will be low, like like last time, more or less forty five percent. On the basis of those assumptions, like we said, it's split almost fifty fifty. In other words, Netanyahu's chances of uh, of of winning his majority is about 50-50. His polling averages between 59 and 61. That's the, if the pollsters are right. Do you think they're right? Well, no, I have, I want to ask you a question, Angel. Which of those assumptions do you think, just based on what you know, your formidable encyclopedic knowledge about Israeli elections, might be wrong? That's a really good question, and I think I'm, I'm going to mention two, and either one would lead to a nightmare scenario for one, either for Netanyahu or for Netanyahu's opponents. I think one assumption that could well be wrong is that amongst those four or five parties which are at risk, three will ultimately drop under the threshold. One, at least one of the Arab parties merits, quite likely. So I think there's two or three parties where the pollsters and 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 let's be honest the pollsters like you said have a small sample which they're working on they are all unanimous that these parties are going to cross the threshold they could all be wrong what if both arab parties go beneath the threshold so if both arab parties, and if in addition merits or labor or israel beten what if we have three parties and these are three parties of the anti Netanyahu block going under the threshold and if let's add because two arab parties are going under the threshold it means the arab turnout will be very low right gets more gets a higher proportion of the votes thanks to that that's a nightmare for the center left it's a blowout wipeout uh scenario for netanyahu whose block can go up to 65 that's a nightmare for those who don't want to see that happen and it's i think it's very plausible I think it's plausible, too. I have to say that, you know, I always tell people never to trust one single data point, And I repeat that. However, we can listen to that data point. We just shouldn't trust it. The one interesting data point that is in my article, I will save anybody time who doesn't have time to read it, uh, was a survey from earlier in October showing the breakdown of likely voters in which Netanyahu's block gets 64 seats. Now, that's a serious breakdown. We use that breakdown all the time in election polling. If I had seen two more surveys like that, I would be offering actual predictions that that's what's going to happen. I have not. That's one data point. It's several weeks old, but it's part of what we should keep in mind. But I think it's equally plausible to see a, 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 a totally different scenario, which is a nightmare for Netanyahu. And I think the assumption that most of the former Yamina New Hope voters are going back home to the Netanyahu block is also something which is not... I wouldn't take that to the bank. I think that the chances of instead of two-thirds of them going to back home to Bibi, slightly flipping it over, and 60, 50, 60% of them 
going over to, for example, the Gans, and even a few going over to Lapid is not implausible either. And if that happens, and if the Arab turnout is just a bit higher than what we're talking, say around 50%, 51%, once again, totally plausible. And if, as the pollsters are saying, all the parties cross the threshold, then that's a terrible result for Netanyahu. He probably will, uh, uh, in that scenario, he gets 57, at best 58 seats. And any talk of a comeback for Netanyahu goes out of the window. I think this is it's just as plausible as the previous nightmare I pointed out. I would say I think those are plausible, but less so than the first scenario that Netanyahu's bloc does better. So I don't disagree that those are the factors that could change everything in favor of the Lapid bloc. I just think that the chances of that happening are significantly lower because I don't see evidence of it. And from the internal surveys that I do have, I do see the majority of former Yamina voters staying with the bloc. But... That's also one survey. Also, we've talked about three scenarios. We've talked about the the middle scenario where the everything the pollsters are saying is what happens on Tuesday night. We've talked about the two nightmares. There are many different permutations of just one party not crossing or turnout changing in one sector. So the pollsters being nearly right, but only one data point. So we're joined now uh, by Deputy Haaretz.com editor Amir Tibon. What's your favorite scenario? My favorite scenario is um, Wednesday morning, 8.30 a.m. 90% of the votes have been counted. And we uh, have a headline on Haaretz.com uh, with the approximate date of Israel's sixth election in the late spring, early summer of uh, 2023. Um, I'm not sure if that's what will happen, but listening to you guys analyze the polling averages, the possible errors, the possible surprises, it sounds to me like that is still a very likely possibility. I'm not good with numbers and statistics and percentages. I don't know if it's you know better than half, um, but it sounds to me like nobody will be shocked if that's where we wake up next Wednesday morning. I do think that for the left, it's hard for me to analyze the situation with the Arab parties. Uh, and I think that's one area where a lot of the pollsters do admit that they are missing information. Uh, but I do think that when it comes to the left-wing parties' merits and labor, just the very fact that this poll on Channel 13 earlier this week showed them on the verge of the threshold could be enough to push them over the threshold because we know the panic mechanism. Um, and this is a voting demographic that um, I think I, I understand quite well. Uh, people are angry at these two parties for failing to merge and run together once again. Um, and uh, specifically, I think Mirav Mikhaili, a lot of people look at her as arrogant. Um, and uh, at the same time, if it comes to you know election day and there's a real fear that one of the parties will fall, people who were planning to vote for Yair Lapid will come back home supposedly and save these two parties. You also see on social media people who, who voted for either of these parties saying, let's just make a deal that we stick with what we voted last time so we divide the, the votes evenly and we don't help merits at Labour's expense or vice versa. We've been there. Listen, I mean, it, it happened in the previous election. It happened with uh, uh, the first uh, election of the round when, the, uh, you know, Kacholavan was the new exciting a thing and a lot of left-wing voters were tempted to vote for it because back then we still lived under the wrong assumption that the size of the largest party in the Knesset makes a difference and at the moment of truth the left-wing voters came back to save merits and labor 
Uh, I think the more unpredictable scenario is really regarding the Arab parties. That's where there's just, I think, a lack of credible information. Uh, I, I would love to hear your take on this, Dalia. I don't trust the polling on the voting in the Arab sector right now. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked if the numbers are much lower than what is expected right now. I also wouldn't be surprised if they are significantly higher. I think it's just an issue where the information we have is not good enough. My only thought about that is that you may have to look uh, with a broader lens at polling in the Arab community. I think it's it, it makes me a little uncomfortable to say we can't trust Arab polling ever because it makes it sound like either the pollsters are totally incompetent if they are Arab, which is not true. No, that's, or that's I know not, you didn't mean that, mm-hmm. but I mean, just we, we, repeat, we hear this repeated yeah. so much. Or it makes it sound like the Arab voters just don't know how to give an honest answer, which I, I don't I know that's not what you meant. But I do hear this circulating a lot. I think that if you keep an eye on Arab voter turnout, both the real turnout and polling over the years, we do have an indication that it's somewhere between a big range. Polls have ranged from as low as one-third to as high as 50% in terms of people who are certain they're going to vote. So anywhere within that range, I think, would be legitimate. I'll tell you what my assumption is based on. Just on the recent history of elections here in Israel, in the first election of April 2019, um, I remember some of the exit polls giving the two Arab parties 12 seats together. Eventually, they only got 10. Um, and there was a surprise on election day that there was a relatively low voting percentage. The second round of election in September 2019, if you look at the polls all the way until the very end, the polls showed the joint list, which back then ran together, getting 10 or 11 seats on election night. It was a big surprise. They got 13. The pollsters missed this late momentum of Arab voters pushing the joint list up to 13. In the third round of election, the 15 seats also came as a surprise. I don't remember a single poll giving the joint list 15 seats before that election. And then in the last election we had last year, um, the eventual result of the only 10 seats was also a surprise. I remember polls until the very end showing the joint list without Ra'am getting nine and Ra'am not even passing the threshold. And on election night, there was this amazing moment when all, I think, I don't remember if it was two or all three exit polls on TV showed Mansour Abbas's party failing to pass the threshold. But in his party headquarters, they were already raising him on their shoulders and celebrating the party's achievement. And that was a moment that showed that there is some problem with the polling that misses what is actually happening. Well, of course, we should remind people that even uh, within the margin of error, most polls have a margin of error of around 35 to 4%. If it's a small sample of Arabs within a bigger poll, the margin of error is bigger. 1% within the margin of error shift can mean uh, a difference of two to three mandates. So that happens in the Jewish parties as well. And we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and I think also one of the challenges, which and here I feel for the pollsters, right? If, if you if you get Likud's total number of seats wrong by one or two seats, let's say you the final poll says Likud will have 31 and they get 30 or 32, it's not a significant mistake. I mean, it's not doesn't really make any big difference. Of course, the difference between getting th- giving three or four seats to Hadash Tal is the entire election. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, some unpredictable surprise either way um, could come our way. Now we'd like to talk about the last issue that is important for this episode. And that is how the media has covered this election with a focus on Haaretz, because, of course, the media is what mediates what happens in the campaign for most of the voters. And I think the voters are not very likely to 
you know, take the initiative, go into websites, read the party platforms on their own. They're really getting what they need from the media. The question is, are they getting what they need? And there's been lots of criticism. There's always lots of criticism. I find that uh, blaming the media is a bit of a sport. Everybody says, well, the media does this and that wrong. And that's why we have you here, Amir, to talk about how Haaretz has made its decisions. I'll just start with what I think has been the biggest accusation people have been making, at least recently, which is that somehow the media, as if it's a monolith, which it's absolutely not in this country, um, have given too much time to Itamar Ben-Gvir. And people are saying, well, the media built him up. It's the kind of thing we heard in the U.S. around Trump. People thought the media gave Trump too much attention just because he's clownish. Uh, or at least we thought he was clownish before he became president, then it became rather something else. And people, some people have even quantified, tried to add up the number of minutes and hours that the uh, broadcast media have given to Ben Gvir, saying that he that, that is somehow responsible for his growth in the surveys. And I'm curious what you guys think of all that. Well, I think that we're talking here about two different issues. There is an issue of how mainstream media, and that in itself is a terrible word, which means nothing, but how the media, which is supposed to see far right or far left or any type of really radical politician in not the best uh, uh, light, how they need to cover politicians like Bangor. And then there's the question of how we need to cover elections. It's not it's, it's not exactly the same issue. And this, this election has been a very weird one for so many reasons, also because of number five and fatigue and everything else also because it's been a long campaign most of it has been over the summer vacations and then the high holidays and i found that the israeli media split into two camps in this election not the pro bb and the anti bb camp but the camp of in the media which says elections yay let's let's dive in and from the beginning all the permutations and the, and the people who were involved in this election who are no longer with us now like Naftali Bennett is no longer an issue and all the different uh, evolutions of the parts of Yamina which split and and names do you remember the guy there was a guy who was the coalition whip does anybody even remember his name near Orbach is like totally gone and stuff like that, but but there were people, but there were reporters and some news organizations who were in it from the beginning and like saturation coverage, and there were other news organizations which made a very conscious decision, including the main Israeli uh, commercial television channels, that we are not going to devote most of our news coverage, certainly not in July and August, to the elections, and they tried. I don't think, I think they did a good job of. Sakakol, not having too much election coverage, but there's an argument. Maybe the, maybe you do need to. You know, there's an important thing. We don't elections are, are a valuable thing. Many countries don't have them. They don't, they don't have them as free or as transparent as we do in it. We can always do better, but the election system here is, is still quite robust. And some parts of the uh, of the media are still even now looking for every story but not elections we've had in the last few days in israel a story about a fertility clinic where the the baby may or may not be genetically of the mother who carries but, you, but i have to say Angel, that actually is a fascinating story um which i think you know brings- is making frantic faces no, no, listen, here right now i i, I do First of- because it's an election distraction it's an well you know what at the end of the day if you ask i think you know you go out to the street here in tel aviv and you ask and you can do a, a scientific poll 
you know, I think nine of ten people will tell you it's more interesting than who gets more seats, Ben Gvir or Benny Gantz, even though that is a much more faithful question to our lives. I know, but last time we had a little bit of a, a mini-debate here about whether this is the Haaretz Law Podcast, because we were talking about religious Zionism's legal reform plan, and whether this is a Haaretz Democracy Podcast, because we talk about elections. I do not think we are the Haaretz Fertility Podcast. We are certainly not the Haaretz Fertility Podcast. But however, this is a really important but, question. But, 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 how much coverage needs to be devoted and at the end of the day media is a business and we also have to somehow keep if we're uh, if we're nowadays mainly a digital online product we need to keep the eyeballs and the clicks coming but, but I do want to go back to what Dalia asked about Benkvir because I think it's an important question did the media build him up um, and first of all I think at the end of the day Benkvir has this you know rising level of support not only because of his media appearances but because of his messaging as well um, and I think one of the problems is that early on in the campaign there was no real force standing up against him and trying to puncture his messaging basically he was rising in the polls by promising that he a, a person who did not serve in the military and who has a, a long uh, a record of a, a you know just provocative and harmful actions that have been denounced by the most senior people in the Israeli military and intelligence community. And really, they see him as a threat, not just, you know, in terms of democracy and racism, but just a security threat. And so he, he had this, you know, promise of I will bring security and I will take care of internal security as well. And on the other side, you had the left-wing parties calling him a racist and a thug. And there was nobody who actually went out and said, you know what, forget the fact that he's a racist thug, which is true. This guy is dangerous. It's, he's dangerous to the security of Israel. He will put IDF soldiers in danger. If he gets anywhere close to the levers of power, he will risk the lives of our soldiers. Only at the very end of the campaign, in the last two weeks, we've started to hear this messaging from Benny Gantz's party. But um, you're blaming the politicians' messaging. You know, you know, is the, do you think the media is at fault with the, with the way they covered Benny Should they Gantz? have not covered him as much? I think no, it, let's say you. I mean, you are an editor at a major well, newspaper. Well, I think for us, it's a bit different because we are not a television channel. One of the problems, I think, is that here at Haaretz, if we interview someone and they lie to us, we will not interview that person again. Okay? I mean, Anshil, as a fellow... Uh, Excuse me? <laughs> I yeah. can think of a few liars we've interviewed more no, than no. once, but okay. A, 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 person, a person who lies to you, I'll, I'll, pu- I'll, I'll try to, re- to, to rephrase it. At the end of the day, they will pay some kind of a penalty. Whereas on television, Ben Gvir goes every day to three different shows, tells lie after lie after lie, and they keep inviting him. Well, he's also great TV. I mean, he pulls these antics. He pulls it's out a true. gun. It's and very he's media savvy, yes. It's very visual. Yeah. And so I think to, to blame the television channels, we're a bit beyond that point. This is their business model today. They Here in Israel... You open the th- you know channel 12 or channel 13, and basically from 4 p.m. until 9 p.m., they show an endless stream of supposed news shows. It's not really news. It's talk shows where there is this mixture of politics and uh, consumerism and tourism stories. And soft, w- soft core news. Yeah, and weird human interest stories. And Ben Vier fits into that lineup. I think the real problem 
uh, is not the fact that the television channels were drawn to him so much, but that there was nobody who stood up to him and gave uh, a message that was actually efficient against him. Uh, and, you know, the, the messages that did come from merits and labor and to some degree Yeshatid, I think they only strengthened him. Um, because for the right-wing voters who are attracted to him and the young voters who are attracted to him, um, saying that he's a violent racist, well, that's, yeah, that's what he is. That's how he presents himself. In the last two weeks, I have seen Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot um, start to say things like, you know, when we were the commanders of the military, this guy gave us a lot of trouble and he did dangerous things and he doesn't care about our soldiers. And I think that is actually a more efficient, efficient message. I just wonder where it was in the last two or three months. So to just come and say it's all because of the media, I think it's an easy off-ramp for the politicians. I want to switch topics a little bit within the media criticism and just point out one observation that has been, that has been I think, important for me at least. And that also shifts which media we're talking about. I listen to a lot of radio. I think some of you guys do too. And I have to say that in the morning radio shows, the, the announcers, the presenters, the hosts, really try in their long interview segments, They, and especially in the beginning, they really tried to pry into the minds of the politicians and get them to talk about policy. They would ask them questions. The politicians would do everything not to answer. They would even say things shamelessly like, I'm not going to answer that kind of a question on the morning radio when it was a strict policy question. I mean, of course you should be answering those questions. And it was very frustrating. And I was almost going to get riled up and write an article about how politicians don't want to talk about policy in this country on the issues that we all care about. But I think it's switched a little bit. Over the last couple of weeks, I hear many of the politicians, especially Netanyahu, for example, going back to the economic messages, talking about cost of living. Yair Lapid has been talking about cost of living, on, going on his record of lowering costs in the consumer basket of goods. Um, it, Netanyahu has promised to freeze mortgage increases, then, rise, mortgage rates, which is ridiculous. Yeah, but it, never yeah. mind. They are talking about policies. Yair Lapid gave his UN speech, and then he didn't repeat it too much. But the point is, by this time, towards the end of the campaign... It seems to me that the media figures are really mostly focused on the political intrigue and have stopped probing oh, them as I listen, much. But I, you know what I hate most, Dalia, and this connects to what you're talking about? I hate the fact that every interview with a politician on Israeli TV or radio starts and ends, and there are seven repeats in the middle, with the question of, will you sit with him or her in the coalition That's together? Right. Will That's you what I mean by intrigue. Now, I think it's dumb because it was always dumb because the, the real answer is, We'll see the results of the election and then start figuring out a coalition. This is our policies. This is what we're going to insist on. This is what we believe. That, that's, that, that's and in fairness, I agree, I agree with the politicians here because over the last of week, course. that's what a lot of them are saying but, but, from but, both but, sides. But you know why it's even worse? Because we are now past two unbelievable governments here in Israel in the last two years. First of all, the Gantz-Netanyahu government, right? Two politicians who for three election campaigns promised they will not cooperate with one another. Gantz said, I will never sit with Netanyahu. Netanyahu said, I will not sit with Gantz. And he called Gantz, what, a, a terror supporter, a psychopath? Uh, I mean, basically any terrible, uh, uh, um, you know, all this, the Iranians had control his phone and whatnot. And then they joined forces in a government together. Okay, then if that was not crazy enough, and it only lasted for eight months, then we had the government of change. Naftali Bennett and Mansour Abbas. Gidon Saar and Meretz. So, and of course, before the government of change was formed, Netanyahu was trying to form a government with Mansour Abbas and Smotrich, and if it wasn't for Smotrich's opposition, it actually would have happened. Uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, by the way, was silent about it at the time. Um, so, 
after seeing all these crazy political scenarios coming to fruition, what's the point of asking the question? Any coalition can be formed if, if Naftali Bennett and Benjamin Netanyahu both court Mansour Abbas to join their government. It's basically a question of who is going to break which promise. It's not a question of what politicians but it, believe but it, in but, but you don't think or it's what it's they're going idiotic. to do. It's what promises they're going to break. You don't think it's an idiotic discussion? Let's talk actually I think it's an idiotic discussion that we're having a fifth election just because one person won't do what politicians in Israel have done in the past and step down when he's being <laughs> when well, he's been well, indicted well, that's but, what it's about but, but but put that aside i mean the the the, okay, the focus it's impossible the, to put that aside the, fo- the focus of all these interviews on will you sit with that party won't you sit with the right why do you rule out this party why don't you rule out that party no it's i think it's something that they should time. i think it's something that the politicians should all answer once in the beginning and at the end and not have each discussion devoted to it and i do blame the media over the last week for focusing on it too much Lapita thinks answer to that is reasonable. He says, we'll talk after this. We'll see what the results are, and then we'll deal with it. And he, he has a great extra answer, actually, by pointing out to the government of change and saying all the pundits said I couldn't do it last time. I'll do it again. But at the end of the day, what he doesn't say is that he needed to make people break their promises and he needed to make, do the craziest thing, and it worked, of... Despite him being the leader of the largest party, having the mandate, giving it to Naftali Bennett, sure. leader of, sure. I mean, and people think people say, and quite rightly here, Lepid was being pragmatic. Lepid was being magnanimous. Way to go! You gave up on your own ego. But actually, Lepid got three times as many votes as Bennett did. People, mo- three times as many people wanted Lepid to be prime minister. And there is an argument saying, why are you giving this guy the job now? I can think that most people in this room are pretty happy that that, that, that government finally came into being, but there were a lot of uh, promises and a lot of principles broken on the way. And that's a wrap for our media segment. And now we go into the final section of our show, which was Party Animal, but we have just a few final thoughts about our Party Animals. And I think, Angela, you have the first thought about today's Party Animal. Well, some, one of the things we've done in Party Animal, we've, kind of, we've talked about bizarre lists, or we've talked about less bizarre lists, but kind of the the, the rather unique and uh, out-of-the-ordinary episodes in Israel's political history. And we've mentioned a few times these parties the majority of the parties running or the lists running in this election will never cross the threshold we'll never hear about them they do they deal with a lot of bizarre things and people are asking in Israel why do we still have fixed hours of uh, of propaganda on television and radio for the parties and it really is a waste of time very few people it used to be the biggest issue when there was only one television channel and we didn't have streaming and so on just clarify that you mean television ads Propag- we call it propaganda television and radio they're at, but they're literally called this is the party's propaganda. And then a party is presented, and then either on television or radio, you'll be hearing, hearing a clip or seeing I, I actually heard it on the radio driving on Friday, and I really enjoyed it for half an hour. I, f- I found it better than the, the, ra- the talk radio. For real, just to listen to the... The, the messages the pro- of the parties yes, as they are, and yes. actually it is instructive to listen, but one thing really struck me last night when I was listening driving home to Jerusalem, to on, listening on the radio to the propaganda... It was a party which I'd never heard of before called Haleva Yudi, the Jewish Heart. I don't know who they are. I don't know who's who's funding them. But they were talking about one thing that did not come up in the election, will not come, will not come up in the election, and that is Israel's arms sales to Myanmar, which are being which were being used not 
just Israeli arms, but also Israeli arms being used in the ethnic uh, or in the genocide, I think we, we can say, of the Rohingya in, in Myanmar. It's not an issue which will ever be on the agenda. And I was kind of happy that there is a party which will probably get a couple of hundred votes and no one will ever mention again, which made sure that we heard on national radio for a couple of minutes about the fact that we are selling arms to Myanmar. Well, I agree that's an important issue. And I would also point out that the reason why the argument in favor of still having these election ads for the parties that nobody's ever heard of, and as you point out, the majority of parties, right? We have 40 parties running, probably 11 are going to get in. That's like almost 30 parties that are getting some play, some airtime, and the public can learn about the other issues that are not you know, central to the election campaign because they have that airtime. So this was based on a 1969 law that was passed and was debated and was challenged in court. And the, the, end, you know, the end result was that they had to be given some resources if they are crossing the threshold. But the and the media is, hates the law because <laughs> it means that they have to give them precious they time and they get time, no money exactly. out to it. But this does put some other issues on the agenda. I have to say that uh, I only have, I have many takeaways from the different parties who came up. I mean, I, what I find often is that these tiny little parties often focus on a specific policy issue. They don't really have a broader agenda. They often focus on one policy issue. Of course, I was devastated to see that there's a corona denialist party. So but I, I would say... I, I, I want to say something about them in last year's election. So I, I live in a kibbutz and uh, we have, you know, one voting uh, 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 booth for the entire kibbutz. And, and everyone the, votes the same. And at the end of the day, uh, they count it. And by 11 p.m., they, they pull out the results in our uh, voting station. So last year, there was one vote for the vaccine deniers party. And of course, that started a whole debate in the community. Who is, Who is this it? person? And you know, it, was the subject, it was the subject of gossip and speculation for weeks after the election. Right. We, have, we have never found out. But I will say that the one encouraging thing after listening to all of these, you know, sort of circus-like uh, political ads was that I think the best quality ad, and many of them are low quality because the campaigns aren't giving lots of resources into the television ads anymore. But there was one that was great quality. It was engaging. It was funny. It was cute. It was clear. And that was the ad produced by the Central Election Committee, which was encouraging people to get out and vote. Yes. And it was very good. It showed information. It showed you how to get the information. And it also gave critical information about voter integrity, including, and this relates to something we talked about last time, the fact that only one person is authorized to use cameras and videotape what goes on in the ballot station. And that is the Central Election Committee monitor. Nobody else is allowed to use cameras. Got that, BB? Though, there, I heard a really interesting conversation the other day on the radio, someone saying, and make a good argument that the CEC should not be encouraging people to go and vote because to stay at home and say you're not voting is in itself a principled action. That person, make of it what you will. That, that is something that I would not want as an elected representative because that person doesn't understand democracy. But that's just my opinion. And that's it, guys. The next time you hear from us, we will know the results, but we probably won't know we who the government is. Know. We hope to know. And we will results. know most of the results. We won't know what kind of government we'll have. Oh, well. We'll probably be surprised about something. I think there'll be a surprise. And so we're going to have a great discussion. And in the meantime, I want to thank our producer, Nahara Malkin. Thanks to my trusty co-host, Angel Pfeffer. Thank you, Amir Tibon, for joining us. See you on the other side, everybody. Next Thursday.